0: Welcome to Arts Monday, Sympoesis on ESAD Radio 89.7 FM. This program takes place on the Gerigal land of Eora Nation, traditional custodians of this land, and I pay my respect to the elders, past, present, and yet to come. My name is Ira, and I will be with you for the next hour and a half, talking to artists and writers whose works take inspiration from the natural world, contribute to the dialogue on climate change and look at the ways to raise environmental consciousness. I will soon be on call to author, professor, deputy director of Sydney Environment Institute, Danielle Sellemeyer, to talk about her recently published book, Summertime, written in the shadow of the 2019-2020 Australian bushfires. Later in the show, just after 11am, I will be in conversation with artist Julie Wolken to talk about her multidisciplinary practice that ranges from performance and installation to text and digital media and is developed through deep research processes and site-responsive sensitivity. Her current projects are developed in response to the personal experience of a wildfire that swept through her shared homeland during what became known as the Australian Black Summer. We will find out more about all this just after 11am when I will be on call to Julie. Throughout the show I will be featuring field recordings and music composed with the sounds of nature. What you are hearing at the moment is cricket voice by German-Canadian field recordist and acoustic ecologist, Hildegard Westerkamp. Completed in 1987, Cricket Voice is a musical exploration of a cricket whose song was recorded in the stillness of a Mexican desert region called the Zone of Silence. And this is what Hildegard wrote about a piece. The quiet of a desert allowed for such acoustic clarity that this Cricket's Night song sang coincidentally very near my microphone, became the ideal sound object for this tape composition. Slow down, it sounds like the habit of the desert. In its original speed, it sings of the stars. The percussive sounds in cricket voice were created by playing on desert plants, on the spikes of various cacti, on dried up roots and palm leaves, and by exploring the resonance in the ruins of an old water reservoir on Easted Radio 89.7 FM, this is Arts Monday, Sympoesis, where we talk about art and environmentalism. I'm on call to author, professor, and multi-species justice advocate Danielle Selemaya to talk about her recently published book, Summertime, written in the shadow of the 2019-2020 Australian bushfires. Danielle, do we have you on the line? Yeah, I'm here. Hi, Danielle. Good morning. Good morning, Era. Good morning. Thank you for joining us today.
1: Yeah, thanks for inviting me.
0: On the cover of your book, Summertime, it says that it was written in the shadow of the recent bushfires. Could you tell me a bit about the moment you started writing this book, the moment when you put the first sentences of it down?
1: Mm -hmm. Mm, That's a really beautiful question to be asked. So on the 31st of December, uh, in the morning, my partner and I, the night before, had packed a truck uh, with our belongings to take to Sydney because we were evacuating. And uh, three days before, almost all of the, um, scare quote, domesticated animals with whom we live, because we live in a multi-species community, we had evacuated to different places. So very early um, On the 31st, I was doing the final preparations to leave. My partner had already left in the truck at five o'clock in the morning. I went outside to disconnect the gas and to roll the gas bottles away from the house. And when I came back in, there was a missed call uh, on my phone. And it was from the person who I, I call M in the book. M had... Uh, taken Jimmy and Kate who are two of our pigs to look after them because we thought her place was going to be safe while ours was under threat and uh, I called her back and she picked up and she said it's all gone, it's all gone uh, so she was outside Cobargo at that point we hadn't known that the fire was going to come to Cabago, but of course now we know that that's the case uh, so I um, called my partner in Sydney, then went down to look after some of the animals who had been evacuated nearer where we lived. And when I was driving back, I stopped in our local town, which is a beautiful little tourist town on the south coast of New South Wales. And the town was full of people who were going about, you know, their holiday business, eating gelatos and having coffee on the sidewalk, cafes And as I drove home, there were some other holidaymakers who were on their deck chairs with glasses of white wine on the river. And I was overcome by what I perceived to be this vast chasm right through the heart of Australia between those of us who were literally with the fires at our door and in the truth of the unfolding climate catastrophe and those for whom it was still abstract. And so when I got home while I was waiting for my partner to get back before we left, I sat down and I wrote the first piece, that ended up in Summertime uh, several months later that was called Two Australias and that was that was really my cry to the other Australia to say, please open your eyes and look at what's going on. So that was the beginning of the book and then I wrote another piece uh, four days later about um, the killing of everything, which I called On the Side. Mm. And then a few days later, I write another piece about Jimmy who had survived the fire in Cabago and had come home. So that was, that. Was, you know, literally those pieces were written um, in the midst of the unfolding catastrophe.
0: And if I'm correct, you live in the Shoalhaven area of New South Wales. I do, yes. And this is obviously the area where uh, the fires were raging. And as you are mentioning in the book, one of the reasons you moved to live there was to experience the greater connection to the land. And the idea, Um, as you describe in the book, the idea that is often associated with Indigenous people, that it is us humans who belong to country and not the other way around.
1: So I have... um, for a long time had a, a, you know, a living interest and also a scholarly interest and a political interest in the more than human and justice for the more than human for animals and the environment and rivers and tree beings and so on. And I came to a point in my own life where I felt that in order to have the type of intellectual and personal transformation that i needed to have for this not just to be a set of ethical commitments to justice for the more than human i needed to change the way that i lived because i don't think that ethics is an abstract business i think that our ethical commitments are formed by the way that we live who do we spend time with who makes direct calls on us in our lives very much much affects Um, who we think we owe obligations to. And so I wanted to go and live with other beings in a very material way. Um, So we decided to move out of Sydney. And in the years since, that was a bit over six years ago, and in the years since I have lived there, I have had such an experience that even though the dominant paradigm of relationship with land in the west is one of property that when you when you live on the land i mean i'm not saying this is true for everybody but i am assuming that it's true for a lot of people that's not actually how you experience the land that's not how you experience the world in which you're immersed. you become so alive to the many beings who are living there and that you are one earth being amongst other earth beings. And so even though the property paradigm is very powerful and, you know, it gives people who, you know, technically own land or legally own land, the, the power to exclude other people and other beings and cut down trees and do all sorts of um, Commit all sorts of exclusive, exclusory and violent acts, at the same time, to the extent that one is present. Uh, whether whether that is part of the official story of your culture, which it's not for non-Indigenous people, the experience that you have is very much one of of being embedded in. A world that is much bigger than you are which you can call belonging to land rather than land belonging to you.
0: Mm. And in that there is a the shift from the idea of exceptionalism and entitlement towards the attitude and practice of stewardship and care for and respect towards the land.
1: Absolutely, and also being cared for by the land. Absolutely. So I think this is one of the things that one comes to have a very embodied understanding of. Mm-hmm. That we tend to think that we're the only we're the only subjects, right? We're the only ones who are having experiences. So I'm having an experience of a sunset, of a tree, of animals. Uh, but what becomes very apparent uh, very quickly is that all of these beings are having experiences of us as well you know the birds are, the birds are so keenly aware of where we are of how we're moving all of the animals are but so are the trees as well now of course their awareness is radically different to ours but you know we're making we we we're bringing vibrations into the area we have a smell about us we you know we move we change the the topography when we come there and so there is this multiplicity of experience and we are one site humans are one site of experience amongst many other sites of experience mm-hmm.
0: And you were touching on embodied knowledge, if I'm understanding it correctly, through what you're saying. And that was certainly one of the big impacts that the book had on me. I was reflecting on the importance of felt understanding, so not just conceptual Mm -hmm. understanding. And you have experienced the realities of climate change very concretely at proximity of your own body and the bodies of those that you care about. So Mm. for you, the climate change was no longer a statistic on the radio or an image on the screen. And in one section of your book, you address the problem of abstraction and the problem Mm. of scale, a problem of data gathering and numbers that are very detached from the body and there from care. So I have asked you earlier to read one section from the book and together we have selected this one. Would you mind reading this section to us, please?
1: No, I'd love to. Uh, Before I start, I just wanted to say that this problem of making what is otherwise abstract and gargantuan uh, concrete and bringing it into one's embodied knowing, as you so beautifully put it, was also a problem for me. So I write about it in the hope that it might be more, become more concrete and immediate for the reader. But I was also struggling with it. So I'm hoping that the writing conveys my struggle with it. I think we all struggle with this. Yes. Uh, so I'll start. An unfathomable number of wild animals have been killed. Based on what we know about how many animals live in a given area of bushland and the area the fire destroyed, the current estimate is three billion. I'm sure that number has been useful in provoking a certain intensity of shock, but I'm cautious of numbers so large, we cannot imagine them. Besides, numbers are flattening, as if there exists three billion units of some item that designates wild animals. A closer way of knowing all this death would be to bring the attention of one's mind to this being. Who had this form of life and these relationships until they were killed then pause then move your mind to this being who had their form of life and their relationships and then was killed and then pause and move your mind again three billion times i've done a quick calculation if you spent just 10 seconds on each of those animals, barely enough to register them as individual beings, the process would take about 950 years. 11 good human lifetimes doing nothing but contemplating the death of animals by this fire in this country, this summertime. Beyond the immediacy of what happened to us and those around us, I also have been permeated with the losses that have been spread over this land and that eke into the future. And now that the immediate danger has passed by the realities of the period of time, we mislabel recovery. As I listen to these two people speaking on the radio this morning, I am even more struck down than I am normally. There's something about animals being killed in a sanctuary that makes it even worse. They were there in the first place because they were the survivors of the slow violence we persistently inflicted on them. The destruction of their habitats through the seemingly limitless expansion of the infrastructure we demand to support the lives we believe we are entitled to. Our careening from place to place in 2000 kilograms of metal across the paths they need to take to reach water or food Shooting them for sport, shooting or poisoning them because they compete for food with the animals we are growing to feed ourselves. Draining water from the rivers that nourish their habitats and where they quench their thirst. A few who survived these myriad varieties of slow violence found protection, safety on a few cut out bits of land we left for them. Then there was our fast violence, the violence of the fire sanctuary over. It's difficult, but perhaps we ought to at least try to imagine the anguish that those few of us who have dedicated our lives to creating sanctuary are now experiencing. Connecting with their first person experience might take us one step closer to the animals whose anguish may be, for many of us humans, too far a stretch, schooled as we are in the arts of human exceptionalism. Now the woman conducting the interview is speaking about the enormous grief that people in the cities are feeling about all of this death. Can you give them some reason to hope, she asks. She's a fine journalist. I love to listen to her, but this enrages me. I've read the social scientific studies on the positive role that hope plays in healing and resilience, but I remain suspicious of the word hope in the mouth of a culture that assumes that progress and improvement ought to be and will be both endless and guaranteed. It's not that I advocate hopelessness, which has its own action leaching pathologies. So long as we insist that hope is a dimension of action and not a feeling about the world we are passively contemplating, I'm willing to embrace it. But too often this word, this feeling, Especially delivered over the radio, strikes me as a low cost soporific. Placation, immunity from the ongoing assault, a way of delivering those of us who remain safe from the direct violence of the fire, a second safety from the violence of grief and the infinity of loss. It is an essential ingredient in the plotline of every popular movie. Conflict, loss, or violence accompanied by intense grief or fear, an uncertain future until a path opens up. Tension of which of the paths we will choose, the right choice taken in the nick of time, closure. If I were making a movie about this summer, I would insist that we stop shooting at the point of an uncertain future, at best at the point of tension over which path to take. Even the animals who survived our fires are now dying as they search futilely for food that has also been incinerated by our fires. The movie would probably not get funded. Who would want to watch it?
0: Thank you very much for reading that. In it, you're also addressing the possibilities that lie between climate despair and climate hope, Mm. which is another very big theme of the book. Could you tell me a bit what is in between of those two, in your view? Mm,
1: so it seems to me that the dominant imaginaries or the the frameworks that circulate for how we we in the global north uh, imagine think about climate change futures are. Uh, that are rather polarised. So there's either, you know, the business as usual, everything is going to be fine, nothing to see here. Or there is the imaginary of hope, there's going to be a techno fix, there's going to be some sort of uh, magical technological intervention that is going to get us out of this. Or there's the doom, despair, apocalypse narrative. And if I just take those last two the the narrative of techno techno intervention and hope or the narrative of doom despair and apocalypse even though they seem uh, polar opposites they have a similar structure in that both of us both of them create this fantasy in which we can leap from the anxiety and the uncertainty of the present into a settled future, where that future is either one of reassurance or it's one of devastation. What both of them avoid is what I think of as the muddy temporality of where we're actually going to be between now and then, right? You don't move from now into some imagined future you move through tomorrow and the next day and the next day and it's within that temporality in between now and some imagined future that all the difference is going to be made it is neither going to be all okay it's already not all okay you know for those who live very privileged lives of immunity, it may feel like it's okay, but for uh, billions of people in the world and for billions of animals and trees and rivers and soils, it's already not okay. There is already climate devastation. Um, and whether it's going to be apocalyptic or not, I'm not in any position to say, but in between those two poles, there is enormous territory for how many will die? How will those who die die? How will those of us who are surviving care for those who are dying? How will we care for each other? All of those questions are yet to be determined and they will be determined in what what is that time in between now and the future. And that's where our capacity to make a difference lies not in fantasizing what it's going to be like
0: Mm -hmm. and also in taking responsibility as you write in the book we shouldn't be talking about these environmental disasters and thinking about them in terms of tragedies but something else
1: so those were two dominant frames that you just mentioned of the way in which the fires, the Black Summer fires, were spoken about, either as natural disasters or as tragedies. I felt quite enraged about both of those frames. A a tragedy is Sophocles or Shakespeare tragedies rain down on us from the gods as if we have nothing to do with it. And similarly, natural disasters are disasters that are born in this realm that we Imagine is completely separate from us, called nature. The climate catastrophic events like the fires were neither tragedies nor were they natural disasters. They were unfolding events within a nature that has been radically disrupted by the emission of fossil fuels, which are directly correlated with the lives of people in late capitalism. So we have our hands all over these disastrous outcomes. You know, the we, of course, needs to be very carefully thought about. It's not a universal we. There is very uneven responsibility. And some people are, of course, not only far less responsible or not responsible at all for what's happened, but they're also in harm's way much more than others so i you know i don't want to claim for a moment in some you know amorphous way all humanity is responsible i think that's a very problematic framing but i think beginning to recognize where responsibility lies and how uh, we need a much more sophisticated understanding of responsibility than the classical you know we are only responsible for the acts that we intentionally take in this case for many of us who live um, very technologically and fossil fuel supported lives in the way we eat, the way we move, the way we communicate, by virtue of living lives that are dependent on the extraction and emission of fossil fuels, we bear responsibility for what's going on. Mm-hmm.
0: You're on EZ Radio 89.7 FM. I'm on call to author, professor, multi-species justice advocate, Danielle Selemire. And we are speaking about her book, Summertime, which was published in February this year and is available in your local bookstore. Danielle, before we wrap up for today, because I know you have another commitment in a minute, I would just uh, like to ask you about the event that you will be participating in on the 30th of April as part of Sydney Writers Festival, Uh, it is a free event booking is essential and you can go on swf.org.au to book i'm pretty sure it's already booked out but have a look yeah i'm
1: afraid it is but it might be being streamed i'm not sure
0: and what is this event uh, going to be if you could just let us know briefly
1: so it's part of the sydney writers festival and it's event on writing about climate change and and i think it will the conversation will include some of the issues that you spoke about earlier about embodied knowledge that the way in which we need to convey the realities of climate change can't just be in this abstract cognitive intellectualized text that we need to write about how we feel about what's going on and so I will be speaking with, uh, I don't know if some of your, your listeners might know, Jonica Newby, who is the very famous journalist, from a science journalist uh, who was on Catalyst for many years. She has also written a book about climate change. And although she's a science journalist, she's written a very personal book about the emotional dimensions of confronting climate change. So she and I will be in conversation.
0: Thank you very much for being with us this morning and for taking time to read from your book.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you for having me.
0: Please do have a look in your local bookstore for the book called Summertime. It's written by Danielle Selemire. You're on ESET Radio 89.7 FM. Let's have a short music break uh, with another track from German-Canadian field recordist and acoustic ecologist Hildegard Westerkamp. This one is called Fantasies for Horns. And after that, I will be on call to artist Julie Vulcan, and we will talk about her body of work, Wishing Dark, and discuss grief in relation to Dark Interludes, the poetic video she made in collaboration with the Living Room Theater, recently premiered at Invisible Dust's Forecast Festival in the UK. Radio 89.7 FM. My name is Ira, and this is Arts Monday Sympoesis, where we talk about art and environmentalism. And I'm now on call to artist Julie Vulcan, who is joining us from Southern Highlands area. Julie, are you there? Hi. <laughs> Hello. Am I right that you're in Southern Highlands area at the moment?
1: Yes,
2: that's correct. I'm just um, uh, in a little village that uh, is between what is the the National, um, bottom of the Blue Mountains National Park, the Natai, and the Bargo um, Conservation Areas.
0: Mm. And what is it like right now? What is the weather like? What are the colours <laughs> like? What are the smells like?
2: Oh, look, we're, we're moving into that really beautiful kind of autumn time when the skies start to get that really intense blue and, um, and the air, of course, now that we've had this kind of Uh, cold uh, front come through. It's very crisp. And interestingly, I mean, this also kind of um, highlights the the black of our trees at the moment and those silhouettes, but um, it also brings out the deeper greens within the the foliage that's coming back as well.
0: Mm, And blacks are from the fires, I'm assuming, from the last summer's fires.
2: Yes, that's correct.
0: Which raged very close to your own home. In fact, everything around you burned beside your own house, as far as I understood.
2: Yes, that's correct. The fire um, the fire basically came right through our village. Um, and we are on one of the, the larger kind of outlier properties, so um, between bushlands. So we did bear the brunt of it. So basically, um, we... We're, we actually thought we didn't have a house. <laughs> well, after we evacuated, we thought we, our house had gone. But we um, were told the next day that somehow it survived, uh, despite the, the fire actually licking up the, the sides of its concrete slab. But unfortunately, the rest of our home, which is of all of the you know, beautiful trees and shrubs and plants and animals and everything that we share it with, um, didn't survive.
0: Mm. And as you were describing to me earlier uh, when you came back five days after everything around your house was surrounded by ash, since then ash became quite a motive of your current works that you made in response to the fires.
2: Yes, absolutely as I will say a bit later on about the ash, but I think that it's just the thing um, when we talk about bushfires and especially for people that come back onto land or onto site after the fires, the ash is just something that you cannot be prepared for. Um, and when I say the ash, I, I, I'm talking about the re- reduction of, of, all of all of that kind of material matter. Um, and that can be either fully combusted or um, partially combusted so a really hot fire will will actually um, burn burn material right to a a kind of a white ash and 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 this is what not not necessarily a good ash to to burn down to what you if there is going to be fire you want it to be more a dark ash Mm -hmm. and and a less combust fully combusted and of course, in many of the the places across Australia that burnt very hot, we had a lot of white ash mm-hmm. um, but it's very fine and and all the trees being so charcoal you you um you just you're living with this every day. you can't go outside without um coming back covered in ash or have ash over your face or have black on your hands
0: mm-hmm. still to this day, is that the case?
2: no not 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 so much anymore i mean of course when we uh, when we're moving around the trees or if we are still because we're still um having to kind of clear away debris as it falls from the trees so a lot of the trees that are not um uh that have been killed by the fire they're still dropping their larger branches from like and when i say branches i mean that canopy branches from the very top so they're still dropping, um, and they will continue to do for years and years, um, just like a normal tree would drop um, its kind of sticks and branches. Mm. But you know, we as we clear those up and um, and pick them up and just maintain things, it's um, you're always as soon as you you pick any of that or brush up against any tree, you you kind of immediately oh yes black. <laughs>
0: mm. And what was the first piece that you made in response to this uh, event of fires and uh, being surrounded with the ash?
2: I don't know whether it's uh, the first piece, but my first artistic response was pretty immediate. We got back into our home um, after waiting, waiting to have, get the all clear because there, were, there was checkpoints and everything was um, people couldn't come back onto their homes until it was deemed safe and. Um, so it was about two days, and we, we managed to get in at about seven o'clock at night. And we raced in, and I had my camera with me, and I knew it was going to be bad. <laughs> I knew I didn't know how I was going to feel. Um, so when we arrived at our our home, um, we couldn't drive down our drive. One of the um, electric poles had had burnt and was like. Um, collapsed across our driveway and was still burning (laughs) Um, or smoldering, I should say. And so we had to go to another kind of uh, part of our, our land to get in. And I just had the camera with me and I basically, it was my buffer. It was kind of the way I could process what was going on in a way that I just in a way that kind of made sense to me, because I knew I couldn't process it <laughs> at that point in time. And I think I think the 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 thing that I said to people at the time was that, that, that it's just like you you're prepared to we you're prepared to not see the trees with they where their leaves, but nothing prepares you for the fact that the whole middle story, all of those mid-story trees, all of those ground shrubs, nothing prepares you for that negative space, that nothing is there and um, and that it's all just black and ash. So I think that the first – so why I say that is because I think that is what kind of um, jolted me right away. And I took so many photos just to – trying to trying to understand this you know it's like it's like a complete disjunct you know Mm -hmm. you leave a place and then you come back and it's completely transformed and um so i started very quickly um creating what i thought would just be a 12-month project but i put it up on instagram and i i called it a visual diary and it was it was called hashtag after the fire hashtag day by day and i would um, I started by posting lots of little, very tight and very detailed photos of the ash and the charcoal. And, and then the little critters that I would might find in those places in the next week or so. And it was kind of a, a way of trying to go against the narrative that was being um, presented to us through the media and and, and through the news which was very much about complete obliteration and destruction. And I was like, well, actually, there's a lot of us that are still here. We're still on site. We're still in our homes. We've come back to our homes and we have to live amongst this. And we're, and a lot of things are still here and, and trying to give this, this understanding that there is an ongoingness despite this kind of incredible, you know, incredible destruction that has happened. There is still life. And this was a this was kind of how I focused uh, a lot of the work from mm. there on
0: and you're still doing this project of documenting the regeneration of the bushland
2: yeah, uh, yeah it's, it's an ongoing thing I mean to pre to to give a background to that I was doing it before the fire as well, so mm-hmm. little did I know that <laughs> it would um you know I, I very that was kind of my happy place as well was to just go into our bushland and you know watch and look and and document and kind of uh observe so it, it it was just another it was another version of that and but it became much more urgent obviously because i really wanted to understand part of it was to understand what was happening in this aftermath and 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 also very much about like how to care for that so you know my partner and i when we came back onto onto this land we were very much like it has to be about how best we can support this place and care for it and, and give it what it needs and allow it to do what it needs to do right now and allow it to teach us so
0: mm. yeah talking about um, so, so... sorry yes continue sorry I
2: realized I didn't answer your question properly um the the project on Instagram did go for 12 months um and then I I kind of said, okay, now that will continue, my Instagram account will continue and just be what it normally is. But all the work, all the photos are now on my website, and it's under um, a, the project title after the fire. And I continue to kind of upload photos into that onto that project page.
0: We are on Eastside Radio 89.7 FM. I'm in conversation with artist Julie Vulcan and uh, she's mentioning her website address. So I will also just let you know that it is uh, juliewulcan.net. Is that correct? That's correct. And then if you have a look at the project called After the Fire Day by Day, you will find out more about this visual diary that Julie is just mentioning to us. Coming back to ash and also you were talking about care. So um, in January, I believe this year, as was it this year? Yes, this year, as part of Sydney Festival here in Paddington Reservoir, you were performing a ritual called Rescript and it included 75 piles of ash that you brought from your home. Could you talk to me a bit about that and whether need for care was part of that performance as well?
2: That work was actually um, a work that I was invited to present by Daniel Sellemeyer, who we just heard from, and Michelson, and as part of the Sydney Environment Institute's program for Requiem. And I think for me, the work actually had been brewing, <laughs> brewing inside me for for most of last year. And I always knew I would make a work with the ash. From this land, I just hadn't worked out when or where. So when the invitation came, it was it was the obvious um, obvious place. So the work I think was not necessarily no. I think it, it, yeah, it was care in terms of honouring honouring the species that had been lost on this place, but also by extension everywhere. And I really wanted to focus on that loss the non-human loss and I mean Danny has we've just heard Danny talk a lot about this as well because I mean we all we we know the human loss we know the human extent of it but it's very hard to find a way into giving a platform for acknowledging that non-human loss mm-hmm. so I that was very important for me and and you know the ash You cannot, we could not walk. And in fact, it makes me kind of a little bit emotional now talking about it, but you cannot walk on a place post fire and not believe, not without understanding that you're walking on the remains of the bodies of little tiny critters from spiders to like very particular species of plants to larger animals that just couldn't get out. And you cannot walk on the ash without understanding that. But at the same time, I didn't want that to just be about a finitude because to me, it's not a finitude, it's not the end. There has to be respect for that ash and that ash is very much a cycle. And so that cycle is, it you know, as we know, it goes back, it creates mm-hmm. a sediment and from that sediment, new things merge. But we also have to protect that ash as well because there's a lot of things going on in that in that ground and under the ground. So to me, it was about that care in terms of acknowledgement mm-hmm. and care for the ash. And then also, it was absolutely a grieving space for that as mm-hmm. well. That grief comes in cycles. And I think that anyone who has lost someone close to them understands that, you know, it's always with you. But sometimes it, it kind of swells. And then Ebbs. So the work very much I, I I mean I had to put a parameter on it, so I decided that the, the parameter would be around the number 75, which is the amount of days that the Green Model Creek fire burnt. And that's the particular fire that actually came through that our fire was associated with in Gundagara country. So I, I named 75 species in that work.
0: I was also wanting to acknowledge that the work was lasting for three hours as far as i understand so it's something that we could potentially call a durational performance so i also was curious what role does duration and time play in your practice and especially in this kind of ritual of grieving
2: i i make a lot of performance work and duration is is very often at the core of it so I've made works from, you know, as short as 10 minutes to as long as 23 hours. And the duration for me is really important. And it's often is in association with repetition. So the repetition of a movement or a, um, a series of actions. And to me, that repetition is, it, it's kind of like a meditation in a way, because it allows the viewer, or it's an offer for the viewer, I should say, but it also allows them to kind of sit with that, repetition of an action and to understand what that repetition of an action is so as humans we kind of just go we want to understand (laughs) so when we when we see something like that we go all right this is what's happening now i get it and then we kind of go we've got it but by repeating something over and over again if we stick with it then it kind of allows us to kind of slip into another space where we start to see actually the the layers that are underlying a particular action and and all of these other things that are coming through, all these other resonances. And I think that also it allows us to kind of really understand the enormity of something when we sit with something over and over again. Mm. So I I think, you know, similarly to how uh, Danielle was talking about in, in naming a species that was lost and sitting with that, you know, how long that would take for how many species have been lost. Similarly, Rescript did that within a four, and it was almost four hours. So I had large bags of ash that I temporarily transported from our home. And I would slowly pick up either a very small amount from a pinch to big armloads, And I would take them to these trays that were set up under some arches, within the Paddington Reservoir space. And each one of those ash pinches or large piles was in relation to a species that I would name. And so that species could be something very tiny to something quite large. And that could include a very large tree. It's not, we're not just talking about animals as well. And then I would write their name on a white piece of muslin which is associated with mourning and wrapping of the dead and I would place a cube of ice and I would knot that into this kind of handkerchief and the knot was kind of this idea of knotting to remember and I would hang this above the ash from the arch and that was my repetition that was my movement from ash to table to writing to hanging and back again over and over and over again 75 times for, and that took me nearly four hours so the idea was that that has taken me that long just to kind of name 75 species that that have been lost in the fire mm, and I suppose it that in. It, yeah mm. and it's also just a way of trying to understand what that means you know mm, to the yeah. enormity of what that means and to kind of create that space for us to really sit in that and think about it
0: mm. yes Um talking about time and uh, taking time to acknowledge something it's also about slowing down i feel and uh, it creates space for listening and today I've been featuring Canadian, Canadian-German, Canadian I think, composer Hildegard Westerkamp, who speaks about the importance of listening and slowing down as actually, in her view, the only way to address uh, the environmental issues that we are dealing with, because it allows us to be in tune with time passing, as she says, to be in here and now, rather than rushing through it and passing by. Oh,
2: absolutely. And I can't, I mean, you know, I also think... I. I can't tell you how attuned you are after a fire to listening, mm. <laughs> because you are listening for anything, anything. Mm. <laughs> you know, from the smallest cricket to, you know, a, a, any kind of bird call. It's like you are so attuned to kind of what's coming. What's what is that? What is that? Something passing? Are they arriving? Is where are they? Like uh, you, you really you really listen for the returnings um and I t- still do I still do because mm-hmm. <laughs> not everyone has returned yet <laughs> you know there's many little critters here that won't return for a while until the um until the the right conditions
0: mm-hmm as an extension of this performance as Paddington Reservoir where you started collaborating uh, with Michelle Santan as you mentioned who is deputy director of Sydney Environment Institute and is artistic director of the Living Room Theater so extension of the rescript was a short film that the two of you made which is called Dark Interludes and is another project about ash yes. <laughs> um so dark
2: interludes was uh, was was happened very very quickly really um, for a film. We we were we just went full guns ahead and just kind of went right. Okay, we're going to do this. Um, so Michelle actually invited me into this process because Michelle had made a very beautiful work to kind of close the Sydney Environment Program seven days after I'd opened the Sydney Environment Institute Program within Requiem. And we both were dealing with ideas of kind of grief and 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 loss and ash and and Michelle's work also was responding to Danielle's work as well so there was really beautiful synergy between the performances so Michelle came to me and asked if I would be interested in collaborating on a short film that she was trying to make for a festival called Forecast in the UK. Purely because we had just discovered this really gorgeous synergy between our aesthetics and the works and the way we work. And we really wanted to respond to this idea of grief and time and space. So I can't really talk for Michelle too much because we we still had, you know, we've still got our very particular ideas that we came to the table with but I would just love to say that the beauty of that collaboration was that neither of us had to explain what we meant when we were going well what about if we put this in and I think that this is how we should shoot this scene and we had this innate trust because we actually realized we both somehow implicitly understood what the either either one of us was um seeing or thinking so basically what we what we arrived at was this beautiful 15-minute work that just came together so quickly and I also have to say could not have happened without um, Sam James the filmmaker and Ashley Scott the sound designer as well as all the performers but I think what we were trying to um, convey there was this very much this kind of slow contracting and expanding of time when you're in in these periods of grief and at that shifts over time as well so it's kind of like this like pulsating that kind of the rhythm rhythm extends out and the cycle extends becomes longer as time passes but it never actually goes away mm. <laughs> so it's, it's it's kind of ritual um, of remembering and remembering and as we say in the text for it and i think that the ash body became represented in this kind of bag that was being carried through these sort of dark transitional spaces and then back onto the land. And the land in, in, in the film is actually part of our home. And so we, we wanted to convey this idea that it was like, you collect one body and you place one body and then you pick another body up and then you place another body and that body returns and then you pick the body up again. And that might be another phase of the grief and then you return that body and then you Mm. place that body Mm. that was part of uh, part of the idea around that there is much more but i kind of don't want to talk too much from (laughs) shell but this is kind of the overview
0: and this um i would say it's a poetic video i would describe it it's called dark interludes and you can actually find it on vimeo and have a look and it's really beautiful so i recommend it uh, very much and I would like to play, actually, a part of the film's soundtrack. It uh, features voice of Amanda Stewart, and as you mentioned, the sound designer is Ashley Scott. Would you like to introduce this soundtrack in any way, or should we play it?
2: It's such a beautiful, beautiful piece with um, Amanda's work. Anyone that knows Amanda's work, she she is extraordinary. Her voice in Dark Interludes became, became the voice of... Of the unnamed, the ones that have gone and moved on, and there is there is a performer in the film that is kind of represents that, and brings that body or the, those unnamed bodies through that kind of um, liminal space or that transitional space, and in a way, she becomes the trees, the darkened trees in the in the last part of the film. So it's kind of, in a way, it's her voice.
0: Well, let's have a listen at the soundtrack from Dark Interludes. I am uh, on call to Julie Walken, your Nisset Radio 89.7 FM. This is Arts Minder Simpoesis. We'll be back with you shortly. This long is so is Listening to the soundtrack from the poetic video Dark Interludes, made by artist Julie Wolken and Michelle Santan from the Living Room Theatre. And uh, it features five double basses played by Maximilian Altoluca, Marie Louise Bethune, Dave Ellis, Jack Emery, and Will Hansen. And the voices by Amanda Stewart and sound design by Ashley Scott. And I'm on call with Julie Wolken. Are you still there, Julie? i am <laughs> that is beautiful that sound design and the voice of amanda is just stunning
2: uh yeah the, the first time uh i heard the i uh, watched the video after we would completed the edit and just sat down and watched it with the sound uh, i just had goosebumps the whole time and then especially about halfway through the film when we transition into the the bush site and and amanda's voice comes through as you know for me personally it was like she was speaking to me as as all of those beings that were still present energetically if not physically so it was kind of a very emotional experience the first time i watched it back
0: And I should mention that some of these musicians will be playing at the Sydney Arts and Community Centre this Friday and Saturday as part of the Living Room Theatres Bottle Up Festival. So head to livingroomtheatre.org and you will be able to find out more about this event and how to book your tickets. The location is in Darlinghurst. Julie, I wanted to talk to you about your ongoing project called Wishing Dark, Nurturing a Dark Ecology, which is driven by an urgent response to our current position of light saturation. Tell me a bit about this. It's a big question. (laughs) Um,
2: I think Wishing Dark needs to be prefaced with the fact that it started as a research development for a new theater work back in 2011. And I realized as I was doing the research for this idea of a theater, new theatre work, I had so many questions around the dark and darkness and, and what that means and, and the effects of what I call the disappearing dark that I very, very quickly realised that one theatre project was not going to do or answer all the questions i had it was kind of like i'd opened this massive massive can of worms so i then decided that wishing dark would become the kind of umbrella title for basically at that point what i considered might be my life's work i could just continue making work around this till the day i died because i just kind of basically thought it was it was there was so much there and so much to be kind of thought around um
0: And you say that the work is investigation into human relationship, in the changing human relationship to dark that has been shifting over millennia. Can you describe to me a bit about these changes and what you have in mind there?
2: I think there's all these mythologies and stories and mappings that we have made about our relationship as humans to the dark. And some of those have been about survival, rightly so, And some of those have been about, well, actually, no, they're all pretty much around survival when you think about it. So even navigating by the stars is about survival. It's about how we traverse a landscape. The stories we tell children not to go out in the dark at night because of the boogie monsters is also back in a time when there was a lot more animal life um around and living in close proximity to humans that that is actually a survival and then we also have uh, these these developments of the those kind of grander narratives those bigger stories that are, that start to kind of fall into those legends and mythologies and religion and, and then start to kind of i suppose fall into those binaries of dark and light and good and evil mm. so it's massive but I wanted to kind of really come back to what it was that we were losing in terms of our relationship to the dark as contemporary, in our contemporary society as modern humans who predominantly live in cities. Mm. And it is projected that, you know, by 2050, over 50% of the human population will be living in urban centers. And that means that they will be living in sight, light saturated environments, mm. and will not have that same access or understanding of what that means to be in relationship with the dark.
0: Mm. I was just uh, um, reading yesterday, actually, in praise of shadows, because you mentioned this book in oh, on your yes. website. And Donizaki wrote this book in 1933 and he refers to this moment where he was wanting to go and watch full moon rising summer in japan i'm not sure where and he went yeah. to this full moon festival and around the whole section where the people were gathering there were uh, it was all lit with lanterns and he just walked away and said how you know the, the the magic of watching the full moon in the dark was lost and it made me think that electric lights or, or this artificial lighting is similar to what is noise or noise pollution to silence or to sounds of nature
2: Absolutely, and there are so many crossovers in that research space between uh, noise pollution and light pollution. There's very there's a lot of um, similar concerns, and and I think the hardest thing about when you when you kind of enter into those spaces of light pollution and noise pollution, um, you know, at first they're not very obvious. Like people find it very hard to kind of understand what, what what is actually the effect of that? Like, how is that really so detrimental? So they're very uh, they're very enigmatic spaces in some ways. And, um, and especially to get any traction in terms of um, political traction or, or um, any notice in terms of how this actually is affecting us as humans. I mean, there is a lot of work done now around how... Um, overexposure to light is shifting our circadian rhythms which is affecting our health and also um, possibly making us more vulnerable to various diseases or to cancers and um, particularly the blue light which Mm -hmm. is often the led lights so we're starting to get this research about how it's affecting us as humans and we've all experienced that that the you know, the the new lights that are on the cars, that everyone complains about the glare and how they kind of momentarily get blinded. But what about our you know, our fellow critters and creatures? You know, like they are experiencing these lights as well mm. and these temporary blindnesses and it's affecting not only um, migration patterns, which is something that a lot of research has been done around bird migratory patterns, turtle migrations, but it's also affecting our pollinators, it's affecting our insects and there's, so there's this massive massive uh, um, nothing is in isolation you know mm-hmm. and I think the other part of it is that we're also losing um, our access to this wonder that is the night sky which in a way I think is so important for humans to kind of actually to keep us in check in some ways to kind of remind us that we are you know part of a massive massive infinite universe and that we still need to be connected into that and be responsible to that Mm. yes and it allows us to dream the other that's the other side of it isn't it dark allows us to dream Mm. it allows us those ideas space
0: yeah i was thinking of dark in terms of uncertainty and danielle spoke a bit about that of being in this space of uncertainty rather than hope or despair Uh, the space of possibility as well but it's a natural actually state of being not to know what's next in some ways Um, I will soon be wrapping up today's show. You're on ESAD Radio 89.7 FM. This is Arts Monday Simpoesis. I'm in conversation with artist Julie Wulcan and we're talking about her various bodies of work, and some of them were made in response to the recent fires, 2019-2020 Australian bushfires. And I will leave you today with another track by Hildegard Westerkamp. This one is called Beneath the Forest Floor. And I will ask Julie to actually lead us out of this show with a beautiful poem that she wrote that is called Ash. Julie, would you like to say something about it before you read it and then the music will continue and the show for today is over?
2: Great. Um, Thank you so much, Ira. Thank you for having me today as well. So this poem, um, simply titled Ash, was written in the first months after the fire. And it's part of a constant writing that I've been doing around the fires and, and still continue to do. But I think it captures that that moment and what it, what it felt like to return to this place after the fire had come through.
0: Okay, well, let's hear the poem. This was Arts Monday, Sympoesis on ESAD Radio 89.7 FM. Coming up next is Pino with Syncopatico, and I will be with you in two weeks talking arts and environmentalism. Have a good rest of your day, and thank you, Julie, once again for joining us. This is Julie Vulcan with Ash.
2: Let me tell you about the ash. It seeps into every pore, every crease. It is as fine as talc. I wasn't ready for the ash. I wasn't prepared for its ways. It took time to comprehend, to understand how it was to become part of my everyday life. Stepping outside, small particles clung to my face my hands, my feet, and my clothes, my fingernails, perpetual dark crescents, the sink and endless constellation of dark droplets. At first, I tried to manage the sooty spots, wiping them away again and again, then less and less. Our water was limited. Fearful of disturbing it, I studied the ash. I carefully prodded it as it formed a thin, light crust. I became protective of it, not wanting to disturb or tread on it. The ash was holding everything in, containing it, waiting. And so was I. Slowly, I started to travel through it, choosing my paths carefully. It was difficult to avoid. It was everywhere. The forest floor, a canvas of thin white ghosts, imprints of fallen trees and deep charcoal fissures of incomplete combustion. My feet sank softly into the carbon remains of the once bush. Sometimes I traced the fine lines of sooty plant stencils on the concrete slab. I marvelled at the stains licking toward the walls and windows of the small marooned house. Other times, this would make me shudder. Before the fire, it was an anxious waiting full of movement and commotion, hot winds, little water, low planes and thumping helicopters. Now it is a silent hiatus. In the early hours, I rise and I make my way into the once bush taking in its soft breath before the heat of the day. Here I extend out and draw in. The once G-bung clings to my skin. The once sedge-grass smears my face. The once wattle wafts under my nose. The once hakia ghost-pricks my finger. And the once thornbill gently nestles into the fold of my clothes.